Kathy Kleiner, Karen Chandler, Cheryl Thomas. Anybody recognize the names? It's kind of decades ago at this point, but they are survivors who ended up being key witnesses in the trial of Ted Bundy back in the late 70s. And I use these people as examples, not because I want to bring up a gross, disgusting situation, but to show the importance of having witnesses at a trial. Because, quite honestly, we don't really know how long Mr. Bundy would have been allowed to continue in what he did had these women not survived and been witnesses against him. And I use this this morning because we're going to begin a passage that I originally was going to try to do all as one message, but we're going to actually break it up into four parts because we see four witnesses that Jesus uses in this passage. We kind of almost enter into what resembles a courtroom at this point with Jesus. There's going to be an emphasis on accusations being made. We'll see that at the end in the fourth witness, but also we're going to see just an emphasis on those being witnesses to who Jesus is. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus making his case for who he is, that he is the Son of God, that life has been given to him, that judgment has been placed in his hands, that he is giving life now and he will ultimately give eternal life later when that final day comes and the resurrection of our physical bodies happens. But as he comes to this point, he's going to use literal witnesses for the Jews that are listening to him in order to prove his point, that they should believe in him. Not that Jesus actually needs earthly witnesses, right? But he uses them for the sake of making a case for the people that are standing in front of him. And what we're going to see as we go through all four parts of this little series is what I've titled it, which is All Fingers Point to Jesus. And the first finger I call the exciting witness. And we've already seen him tie a couple times at this point in the Gospel of John. It's John the Baptist. So let's read that portion, John chapter 5, starting in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Before jumping into the witnesses, though, there's a couple verses we get there right at the beginning that show us the humility of Jesus, which is our first point. It's important before we get into the witnesses that we actually see Jesus' approach to this trial. As the Son of God... Jesus doesn't really need these people's approval. He he doesn't need them to to give him glory, to approve him, to give any sort of witness about him. He doesn't need that. He's the Son of God in and of himself. But his humility shows up here. 
his care so much for the people that stand in front of him that he's willing to lay down his own authority, his own status as son of God, and use these witnesses to hold court, in a sense, and try to make his case before the people in front of him. Right? So the first thing we see is that Jesus' testimony is true, but instead he lowers himself to the standard of the people in front of him. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, if we take this, we read this, and we take it at surface level at first, it sounds like Jesus is saying, if I alone bear witness about myself, then that means my witness should not be listened to. It shouldn't be heard. It's not true. But we know that that's false, isn't it? Jesus can bear witness about himself. Jesus is the Son of God. If God himself can't bear witness about himself, then who can? So what Jesus is doing here, though, is he's saying, I know in your eyes, in how you guys hold court, that my own witness isn't enough for you. Right? His testimony really is sufficient, but instead he comes to their level. He knows what's going on inside their minds. He knows they don't recognize him as the Son of God yet. It's hard for him, for them to believe him based on his own word alone. It's kind of like, if you consider, if you've ever had to fill out legal paperwork and there's a signature, right, for a witness or for a notary or something, would they accept it if you signed your signature and then signed as your own witness? No, because in the legal world, you can't do that. You can't be your own witness. It has to have at least a second party there. That's kind of what's going on here. Jesus, technically, in the scheme of the whole universe, can be his own witness. He is the Son of God. But he's saying, in your world, in your legal world, you don't make that case. You don't allow for that. So I'm going to use some witnesses more than you could ask for, right? Normally it was two or three, and we're going to see Jesus ultimately ends up using four. So he lowers himself to their standard. And then, beyond that, he begins to use witnesses that they are familiar with, right? That's the second part of it, is Jesus not only just uses random witnesses, but ones that they are familiar with. We know ultimately, not today, but next week we're going to get to the greatest witness, which is God the Father himself, right? So if God the Father's witnessing about Jesus the Son, then surely the Jewish people should listen, but we know that he's going to use John the Baptist today. But look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Right, so Jesus is going to use other witnesses here, witnesses that these people are familiar with. And like I said, we know ultimately it ends up at God the Father. But it's important for this, right? For the Jewish people, to, for Jesus to use witnesses that they are actually familiar with. That makes it more believable for them, doesn't it? Think of your situation in your life. If you've ever had a child come to you and make a request, right? You ever had one of your children ask you, can I get a phone, or can I go to this party, or whatever, and, and their witness for it is so-and-so's parents are letting them do it, right? That's their witness. If you as a parent have no relationship with that other set of parents, you don't even know who they are, you don't know how they, how they parent, how they run their home, or anything, how much does that witness bear on you? 
It doesn't. You're not familiar with them. It, it means nothing if you don't know who they are. So Jesus says, I'm not just going to use random witnesses. I'm going to use witnesses that you as the Jews are familiar with. These are people that you know. And we know that it's the Father because we might read verse 32 and think when he says, there's another who bears witness about me. I know that his testimony is true. We might be tempted to think he's going into John the Baptist right now. But we know that with a verse we didn't read yet was verse 36. Jesus says there's an even greater witness than John the Baptist. So we know ultimately he's getting further down the line to God the Father. But nevertheless, he is going to use John the Baptist. He'll use God the Father. Week three, he'll use the scriptures. And week four, he'll use Moses. All witnesses that these people are familiar with. And then we get to the end, and we see his purpose for using these witnesses. Verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He doesn't need man's testimony, but he uses it for the purpose that the people in front of him might be saved, that they might believe in him. This is how we really know that verse 31 that we saw before, Jesus isn't actually literally speaking there, that his testimony isn't true in and of itself. Right? He says right here, I don't need man's testimony. I don't need to receive man's testimony. My testimony is enough. But we know in verse 31 he says it for their sakes, and he's continuing it here because verse 34 tells us his purpose is so that those in front of him might be saved. In fact, if Jesus did find the need to have the approval of mankind's witness, it would actually prove the opposite, that he's not the Son of God. Because anyone who's dependent on the witness of men is not God. So in fact, if Jesus did need their witness, it would prove the exact opposite of what he's trying to prove. But he still continues to use it so that his hearers might be saved. Many of us know John 3.16, right? You know John 3.17. We went through it already as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, but we see this same theme show up. John 3.17 For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The purpose of Jesus coming into the world, the purpose of Jesus' argument here, the purpose of Jesus using witnesses here is so that people might be saved. It radically changes Jesus' approach to this trial with that being the priority, that people might believe in him. So he is willing to humble himself, lower himself to their standard that people might believe in him. So we must ask ourselves, how low are we willing to humble ourselves for the sake of other people's salvation. This is, after all, the mission of Christians, isn't it? To make disciples. But it's a 
costly mission. Humility stirs us, or it should stir us, to put aside our own pursuits, our own desires, our own priorities for the sake that others might be saved. I have three areas of life I just want to hit pretty quickly. The first one is our family. It can be tiring. It can be a battle to make sure that the Bible, prayer, worship are at the center of every day of our own individual lives. And then you add on top of that making it the center of your marriage. And then on top of that making it the center of your parenting. And then on top of that trying to Share the gospel with those who are outside your home, those who no longer live with you or those who maybe never have lived with you. And there's a cost to this. It costs you your time to make sure that your marriage is centered on the gospel, to make sure your children are centered on the gospel, to make sure that your parents or your brothers and sisters or your cousins or whoever it is, it takes time for you to make that a priority. It takes energy. It means you might have to give up time of rest in order to share the gospel with somebody. It means it may cost you relationships because there may be people who don't want to hear the truth of the gospel. It may cost you money because you might have to put aside extra hours at a job in order to be at home to do what you're called to do with your family. But humility stirs us to do this. Or another area of life is your coworkers, right? It might create an awkward conversation to share the gospel with them. It might be difficult to just randomly bring it up with somebody sitting across the table from you in the break room. And it could be costly. It could cost you your reputation at work. It could cost you your popularity with the people around you. It could cost you a promotion because they don't want a Jesus freak to be raised up in the company. It could cost you friendships because somebody doesn't want to hear it. And the last area is our neighbors. We live in a society that has made us so centered on our individual lives, our individual families, that it's normal for us to forget that there's people living beside us. And it's strange for us to think about witnessing to the people that are our neighbors, unless we already know they're believers. And it's, it can be a costly thing. Again, it could cost us our time. It's going to cost us our effort to actually create a situation to be over there. It's going to cost maybe money if you're showing hospitality, inviting them over to your home. It could cost you your reputation around the community. Other neighbors might talk about you and what you're doing. It could cost you your pride because you don't want them to think anything about you bad. But here's the reality. If Jesus's purpose is that some might be saved, and we call ourselves followers of this Jesus, how could we not humble ourselves? Paul will later say, to the Jews I became a Jew, to the Gentile I became a Gentile, to the slaves I became a slave. Paul says, I'm willing to put myself in whatever status I need to be put in that some people might be saved. How low are you willing to humble yourself? Give up your own pursuits, your own desires, that some of those around you might be saved. 
So that's kind of the intro part as we approach the trial here is the humility of Jesus. But now we get into the actual witness. The one of, I call, excitement. The exciting witness. John the Baptist burning and shining. This is certainly a witness the Jews were very familiar with. Right? John the Baptist had a following among the Jewish people. Even some of his followers began to be concerned when Jesus started gaining a bigger following. They said, do you see what's happening there? We, we, we're a little worried about that. We don't want him to get bigger than you, John. We know John wasn't worried about it, but it just shows how much of a following John the Baptist had among the Jewish people. And we find out a couple things about John the Baptist's witness here. Verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. So the first part we find out is the Jewish people actually went to John the Baptist. It's not that he came to them. It's that they were going after him. They were so excited about John the Baptist's ministry that they were coming to him. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Right? Now we know the religious leaders were probably sending people for the wrong reasons. Right? They were bitter towards John because he was gaining a following. But amongst the everyday Jewish people, this was a big deal. Right? This was huge because this man sounded a lot like an Old Testament prophet. And remember, up until John the Baptist comes, up until the beginning of the Gospels start... It had been 400 years since a prophet had spoke to Israel. 400 years of silence. And now John the Baptist shows up looking like an Old Testament prophet, speaking about one to come, the Messiah to come. So of course they're excited. It's been 400 years. They've been waiting for this. They get excited. And what do they ask him? Who are you? They want to know John's identity. So it's a witness that they not only were excited about, but they were so excited about it that they were going to him. They were sending people to him to ask questions. Jesus chose a great witness to start with. But notice the second part of verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Upon them asking John the Baptist about his identity, the Baptist responds with the truth of who he is. Now Jesus is narrowing in. He's not so focused on the Baptist's identity as much as he's focused on his testimony, his message, reminding them that, yes, you got excited about John the Baptist because he looked like an Old Testament prophet, and in a way he kind of was the last Old Testament prophet as they transitioned here. But he says, did you listen to what he said? Go back to chapter 1. And let's just read a little portion, starting in verse 20. This is his response. He confessed and did not die, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
as the prophet Isaiah said. He says, I'm the one preparing the way for the one to come after me. Or jump down to verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. How much more clear could John the Baptist's testimony be? Right? He, he tells them, you don't put your hope in me. I'm not the Christ. I'm paving the way for the one to come. And then he clearly points at Jesus and says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, Jesus was before me. He, he existed long before me, eternally with the Father. The Baptist ministry even rests. Right? He says, my whole purpose of baptizing with water was that Jesus might be revealed to you. This should have aroused more excitement in the Jewish people when they see Jesus, that the Messiah is here. But what happens is they end up missing Jesus. They're so focused on John that they miss Jesus. No matter how passionate John was. Look at the first part of verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp. John the Baptist is referred to as a lamp. Remember, John the Baptist himself said, I am not the light, but I come bearing witness about the light. The burning and shining lamp makes sense. Something else ignited him. He was not, he didn't ignite himself. He wasn't shining as a lamp in and of himself. Something set him to shine. Or rather, someone else ignited him. His whole ministry was pointing to the light. So we see two parts here. We see, first of all, he was a burning lamp, which refers to the ignition, right? It's, it's like when you first light a fire, right? It doesn't take long when you start a fire for the heat to start to be felt around it, right? John the Baptist's ministry had So much excitement to it. He was so passionate. He was so ignited about Jesus, about the one to come, that the Jews could sense something there. They were drawn to the excitement that John the Baptist had. So he was a burning lamp, and he was a shining lamp. Not only was his ministry passionate, but it was a ministry that wasn't hidden. He wasn't baptizing people in secret. He was doing it publicly. That's why the religious leaders sent to ask him questions in the first place. His lamp was bright and public as he pointed to the one that was coming after him, the one he would say, whose sandals he is not even worthy to untie. But we have to ask, how much does our life resemble the burning and shining of John the Baptist? There's a story of a man golfing with his buddy one day. And it's a beautiful day out, and they're going through their course, and all of a sudden along the road, they can see a funeral procession starts. And what happens is the one man stops his golf game and takes his hat off and stands there in respect as the funeral procession 
passes on by, and his buddy thought it was kind of odd. You know, most golfers wouldn't do that. So he, he goes up to him and says, hey, I thought that was, that was really cool that you, you know, were respectful and did that at the, this funeral procession passing by. And the other one looked at him and said, well, I figured it was the least I could do. After all, we were married for 35 years. Unfortunately, too many Christians treat God that way. That we think, I'll show up on Sunday and Wednesday and give him my respectful nod and then continue about my golf game or continue about my regular daily life. But we have to ask, does the witness of John the Baptist burning and shining resemble our witness John the Baptist is more than just a good witness for Jesus to use for the Jews. He's a perfect example of what a faithful witness is for us. One who burns and shines his lamp like a city set on a hill. One who has a light shining and does not hide it under a basket. So let's take the two parts of it. First of all, does the person of Jesus and the good news of what Jesus has done burn in your soul? First, you have to ask, have I ever experienced this burning in my soul? Right? Have I ever put my trust in Jesus, you know, who's going to go to the cross and then be resurrected? Have I ever put my trust in his death and resurrection? Because that's what John's hope was set on. Not that he knew everything Jesus was going to do, but he knew Jesus was the one who was going to do it, whatever it was. He already said, this is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew that his hope for eternal life was set only on trusting Jesus. So have you ever experienced that burning in your soul? Ask yourself, what am I passionate about? What do I get excited about? Is it a certain sports team? Is it about the accomplishments you do at your job? Is it about... Lord, help us, the politics that are going on in our world. Maybe it's even your children. We can get caught up in even that rather than Jesus. And you have to ask yourself these things, whatever it is I get excited about, whatever it is I get passionate about, am I more passionate about that than I am about Jesus? This was the entire life of John the Baptist. Once his ministry started, all of it was about, I'm going to point to Jesus. I'm going to point to Jesus. I'm going to point to Jesus to the point that he ultimately gets arrested and beheaded because of it. And then we have to take the second part, not just is it burning, but is it shining? Does that fire that burns within us shine in a way for all people to see? Churches in America especially, have become way too comfortable with the idea of being closet Christians. That is a term that is not applicable in the Bible. There's no such thing as someone who's a Christian at my house or at the church. We are called to be lights that shine in the midst of a dark world because there's a fire burning within us that's been ignited by trusting in Jesus. John the Baptist was a lamp in a very dark world. But his message was 
that there was a light coming, not just any light, not like another lamp was going to be lit, but that the sun was coming up, that the dawn was appearing. And we see how the people responded to it. This is the last point, that they had a joy that fades. It would make sense that the burning of John the Baptist would stir others to respond with a burning response as well. But we see that what appears to be that response at first doesn't end up lasting. There is an initial appearance of joy, verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So at first they are willing to rejoice. At first they are hopeful. It it seems exciting, just like you'd expect. We talked about this, that this is the first Old Testament prophet look like in 400 years, even though John the Baptist's message was a message of repentance, which most people don't want to hear, they were excited just to hear a message from someone who seemed prophetic. So there was hope stirred that because these first people responded with rejoicing, with joy. But notice that they end up putting their hope in the lamp and they miss the sun. That is beginning to rise. Notice what does Jesus say about their rejoicing? For a while, in whose light? In his light. Not Jesus' light, in John the Baptist's light. Their rejoicing was in the message of John the Baptist, was in John the Baptist himself. Their hope was being placed on him, not on the one that he was speaking about. They were rejoicing in John's light. The Baptist was never pushing for this, right? John the Baptist would have never said, put your hope in my light. He was always pointing at the light to come. But the people were so blind, so hardened to the idea, this concept of a Messiah being a man from Nazareth, a carpenter of all things, that they end up putting their hope in the lamp shining and they miss the sun that is dawning. The Jews were way too easily satisfied They thought, we get to keep our Old Testament law, we get the water baptism from John the Baptist, and we're good. This is our rejoicing. We don't need to go crazy and follow this Jesus guy who seems to be breaking the Sabbath, or the one who claims that he can rebuild the temple in three days. We don't need that. That's crazy talk. We're going to be happy with our law and our water baptism from John the Baptist. Thus... When John the Baptist's ministry begins to fade, what fades with it? Their joy. Their joy fades while the Son of God himself is in front of their very eyes. Jesus gives them this indictment, right? This is not a good thing. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. This is not applause for them. This is an indictment, if you want to use legal language. He's indicting them here. You had a witness telling you about me, about Jesus, and you rejoiced in him for a while, and then your joy faded, and now you have the one he witnessed to standing in front of you, and your joy is gone. For those who are living in the dark, when the sun comes up and the lamp is no longer necessary, you should be rejoicing. The sun is here. Who needs a lamp anymore? 
But instead, the people are acting as if the dark still remains, and now their lamp is gone because John the Baptist's ministry has faded. So their joy then fades. The Son of God, who is the light of the world, stands before their very eyes, and their joy is nowhere to be found. It's faded, and it's lost until they recognize that he is the light. Until they realize Jesus is the only one who can ignite the burning within them and allow them to shine like John the Baptist did. And they are completely joyless. Even hostile to him at some points. Ultimately leading to his own crucifixion. You know, we just had the Super Bowl recently. And the Chiefs have a joy that is faded. Because they won last year, right? So now that they've lost the Super Bowl this year, their, their joy has now f- probably begun to fade because it's been over a year now and it's just too far gone. And now they have a loss in front of them. But for those who are fans of Tom Brady, he seems to have a joy that just keeps on giving. He just keeps on winning Super Bowls no matter which team he seems to be with. On a much more massive scale, John the Baptist's ministry faded, and their joy along with it. But true joy has arrived. I'm not saying Tom Brady is Jesus, by any means. But what I'm saying is, Tom Brady loses games, Tom Brady loses, has lost Super Bowls, he's going to lose Super Bowls, he's going to retire one day. But for these people, on a much more massive scale, true joy has arrived. The sun has risen. Who needs a lamp anymore? And they've missed it. If you feel like your joy in Jesus has faded, it's likely that your joy has been misplaced. And it can be misplaced in a number of things, even good things, right? We often think of if someone's misplaced their joy, it's because they're finding it in something dark and evil, right? We think of like alcohol or drugs or people being lazy or people who steal, right? That, that they, they're finding their joy in the wrong things. But you can even find misplaced joy in good things. John the Baptist's ministry wasn't a bad ministry. It was a good thing. But when it became the ultimate source of joy for these Jewish people, their joy ended up fading. It wasn't meant for ultimate joy. So look around your life and ask, where has your joy been placed? What is it that you find yourself most excited about? Most committed to? That which has the most value in your life? If none of the answers to those questions is Jesus, your joy is going to fade. Because everything else in this world, at some point, will fail. It will fade. But I can tell you this, John the Baptist, his joy as a witness didn't fade. Even when his ministry ends, his joy didn't fade. Though he may not have understood, he even said that, right, in chapter 1. I don't know what all of this Jesus looks like, what's going to happen. I don't know what's all entailed in this, but I know he's the light. So what did he say? I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to decrease myself that he might 
increase. As he humbles himself, he finds himself burning and shining that all might be saved. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I want all of us to have lives that have been ignited by the flame of Christ. May you find your joy in Jesus. Not in anything bad, evil of this world. Not in anything good, blessings in this world. But in Jesus alone. And as you find him as your source of everlasting joy, may you humble yourself. Lower yourself to whatever standard you need to for the sake that others might be saved. And in that humility, may you find yourself burning and shining as witnesses for Jesus. Let's pray.